Let's continue this morning in our study in the book of Acts, where we left off the last time in chapter 15. We're approaching the end of that chapter and moving on into chapter 16 today. Up till this point, Paul and Barnabas have already completed their first missionary journey together. They traveled over a thousand miles, some say as much as 1,500 miles, depending on the way they actually did traverse that territory. But they went into the territory of the Galatians in Pisidia, known then as that by name, northern central Turkey primarily. They had sailed first to Cyprus, the island about 75 or 80 miles offshore from the Israeli coast. They sailed from Cyprus after spending several days there to the mainland in a city called Perga, and they went from there moving northeastward into the territory of Galatia. And then after having done that, they came back in that same general path and arrived back to their home church in Antioch in Syria. It took them well over a year, some believe as much as two years, to complete that journey. Remember, they walked on land most of the way. And, of course, they sailed in ships. And I'm convinced that perhaps in those sailing experiences, they were dangers that they had to endure, that they had to face. The Mediterranean Sea can be a very, very difficult sea to navigate on, especially certain times of year. And Paul elsewhere tells us that he was at least three times in the sea having been shipwrecked. That's not a very comfortable experience, I wouldn't think. But not only did he experience natural phenomena that prevented him and slowed his ministry down somewhat, his and Barnabas's, but there was always opposition as well. And we saw some of that opposition in our previous studies on that first missionary journey. I'd like to continue with that particular thought because the opposition does not end there. And I need us to be, I believe, I think we all need to be aware of the fact that opposition is something that we should expect as a common experience for all of us who serve the living Savior. So with that in mind, let's read beginning with verse 36 of chapter 15. And we see another issue that arises that causes problems for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Chapter 15, verse 36, the book of Acts. Luke writes these words, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Great idea, Paul. It's probably probably as much as five years, four or five years since they finished their first journey. They've been in Antioch for that many years now, ministering to the people there, Antioch and Syria. And now Paul has this on his heart. He wants to go back and visit those churches that they had spent so much time with during that year or two in Galatia and the other regions in that territory of now known as Turkey. It was a good thought and a good thing that they should do. He was concerned about those churches. They were Gentiles primarily. 
They had left them with leaders in the church, but they had no way of knowing exactly how things were going unless they actually had gotten letters from them, and apparently they hadn't. So he's very concerned about this. Many churches that had been started along that first missionary journey in all those various places that he went. And so Barnabas thought it was a great idea. And in verse 37, it tells us, though, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Remember John Mark? He had gone with them initially on that first missionary journey. He went with them to the island of Cyprus. He traveled with them to the mainland. And it was there in Perga that he got apparently cold feet. Whatever it was that caused him to not want to go any further, John Mark left that ministry and went back home to Jerusalem. And apparently, Paul was very discouraged by that. Perhaps you could say he was even upset with John Mark having left for whatever the reason it was that he left. It wasn't acceptable to the Apostle Paul. Barnabas, on the other hand, and partly because he was Barnabas's nephew or cousin, depending on how the translation actually should be made, he was a relative, a close relative of Barnabas, and Barnabas wanted John Mark to be able to experience that which they were experiencing as they went on these journeys. But now on this fresh opportunity, Barnabas wants to give that fresh opportunity to his relative, John Mark. Paul, unfortunately, thought otherwise. But take note, of the, if the wording is very clear in verse 37 again. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. He had settled it in his mind, he's coming with us. But verse 38 says, but Paul insisted. So, Barnabas was determined. Paul insisted that they should not take him with them. Now we've got a conflict. So opposition doesn't necessarily come from the outside. It happens also from time to time through things that take place within the body of Christ that cause division, that cause a struggle, that cause a difference of opinion that burns into the hearts of the souls who are involved to such an extent that it causes major, major schisms in the body. Luke gives us this information, and he didn't have to. He didn't have to share that there was a conflict within the body of Christ. He could have kind of glossed over that and made it look like, hey, everybody's happy in the church today, but that's not his purpose in writing this book. He wants to give us all the detail so that we can know, because there's nothing new under the sun, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. And if that's so, then what they experience, even though some of it was not good, we can also experience as well, though it's not good. But how do we deal with it? How do we reconcile? How do we correct that which is wrong in the body of Christ? Well, we're not told that specifically in this passage. But there was a reconciliation. And I'm so grateful for that, that Paul and John Mark, who is 
better known to us as Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, there was reconciliation between them. So much so that Paul, in writing to Timothy, asks Timothy to bring John Mark with him because he's beneficial to him in the ministry. There had been some way, and we're not told how it came about, but somewhere along the line, after this event, and before Paul ended his life, there was a reconciliation that took place between he and Mark, and Mark became a very helpful man of God, servant with Paul in those last years of his ministry. I'm glad that Luke includes that also. With regard to Barnabas, we don't know if there was ever any resolution between them. Barnabas is going to be mentioned one last time here in this passage, and then we know nothing more about him, about his ministry. Luke doesn't focus on Barnabas from this point on. But it tells us, again in verse 38, Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Barnabas took John Mark, and he went back to Cyprus, sailed from the Mediterranean coast of Israel, went on to Cyprus, and from there we know nothing. But we do know, later on, Peter talks of Mark also. And Mark apparently did well. And Peter took Mark as well with him on his journeyings as he brought the Word of God to the Jewish populations around the known world. And I believe if you look at Mark's Gospel, you'll see a lot of Peter's influence in the way that Mark writes that Gospel. Things that only Peter could have known that Mark records for us in that Gospel tells us very specifically that Mark really was close to Peter. And Peter did have a great deal of respect for Mark. He earned it. Whatever it was that caused him to stumble and fall away on that first missionary journey had been corrected. And he moved on from that. He learned from Barnabas and others who helped him. And by the way, remember Barnabas? His name means son of exhortation, encouragement. He wanted to encourage Mark, and he apparently did. Paul, on the other hand, wasn't really... He wasn't ready to let Mark join him. He needed instead for Mark to prove himself. Apparently Mark had done that. And that's a wonderful thing. So who was right? Was Paul right in refusing to take John Mark? Was Barnabas right in insisting to take John Mark? Yes. And yes. They were both right, I believe, in, a, in their own way. And as a matter of fact, as far as God's work is concerned, it proved to be beneficial. Now they have two missionaries going on two separate directions, bringing the Word of God to different locations. So God used it and brought glory to His own name because of it. 
But again, from this point on, the focus is on Paul's ministry. And so we begin chapter 16 with that starting of that second missionary journey. Again, they start out from Antioch in Syria. So if you want to use this archway as a kind of a map, if you will, he'd be up there in the title of this overhead where Acts chapter 15 or 16 verses 5 and 30 are. That's about where Syria of Antioch or area, <laughs> Antioch of Syria was. And they, they traveled to the Mediterranean Sea. This is the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, Israel on the right, sea on the left. And instead of going to Cyprus, out here in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, he went northwest above the top of the arch to a place that he was very familiar with, the territory then known as Cilicia. It was where he was from. The city of Tarsus is in that territory of Cilicia. And so Paul goes to familiar ground. He hadn't done that. He could have gone to Tarsus on his first missionary trip, but instead of going southeast to Tarsus, they went back along the path that they had taken. They never got down that far, but now he's leaving from Syrian Antioch, and he's going to his hometown, apparently, and a few other places on that southeastern Mediterranean coastline area of now Turkey. And he's moving now from there northwestward through the mountain range that is there. There is a pass known as the Cilician Gate that allows him to get through that mountain range back up to the territory where they had been ministering to the first time around. Meanwhile, again, Barnabas has gone to Cy Cyprus, and we know nothing more about his journeyings from this point on. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 16, then he came to Derby and Lystra. And remember those two cities? Derby was the last stop on his first missionary journey. He's now arrived in Derby again, and then he goes to Lystra. These are places where Paul had met some opposition as well. But there's something else that had happened, apparently in Lystra, that Luke chooses to address in this particular portion that we're reading here. So again it says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. So apparently on Paul's and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they had several people who had come to the Lord. Many believed that Timothy was among them, or if not Timothy, at least his mother and his grandmother. They are both named by Paul. Lois is his grandmother. Eunice is his mother. And it tells us here that his mother was a believer. She had come to Christ, probably through Paul and Barnabas' ministry. And Timothy now is recorded here as being her son, but his father is a Greek, though she is a Jewish woman. Now, that's important for us to understand. Jewish tradition insisted upon Jews not marrying Gentiles. They were very adamant about that. But things were changing in the world. Rome had become the dominant power. 
And there were many of the Jews who had traveled outside of Israel who had been Hellenized, which means that they began to observe and believe the things that the Greeks had taught. Their philosophies had entered into some of the Jewish traditions, if you will. And so this Jewish woman, being a Hellenist Jew, married a Greek outside of the will of the rabbis in Jerusalem, but she lived far from there. So it was more acceptable to Jewry in those regions of the world. Nonetheless, she had a son named Timothy. Jewish tradition also says that regardless of what the man may have been, whether he was Jew or Greek, the son would take upon himself the religion of his mother. That was the way the Jews believed it should be. So, Timothy was brought up with teachings from the Old Testament. Paul tells us about Timothy very clearly in another place, that Timothy was from his youth taught the Scriptures. But there is a bit of a problem, because Timothy over these past four or five years, has grown like a weed, apparently. And he's a young man, and he's anxious to help Paul in the ministry. When Paul arrives in Lystra, he's even suggested by others that, Paul, you should take this man. He will be a great help to you. Well, Paul did need a man like Timothy, as John Mark had been, or should have been, perhaps Timothy would be. And so Paul apparently jumped on this opportunity to take Timothy with him. However, there was a bit of an issue. Because Timothy, having a Greek father, was not circumcised as a Jew. Now remember, we had just read last time about the letter that came from the church in Jerusalem. And that letter instructed the Gentile churches that those Jews who are trying to tell you you must be circumcised in order to be saved, they're wrong, and we don't, we don't want to have anything like that for you to have to observe. So they wrote a letter which Paul was bringing with him and Silas to all of those churches so they, they could tell them, all right, you Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem agree. But what is going to happen to Timothy. His father was a Greek. He's uncircumcised. But he's considered to be a Jew. And yet he's now going to be going with Paul the Apostle and Silas on their journeyings. And they're going to enter into city after city. And where are they going to start? In the synagogue. Once they find out Timothy's history, oh, your mother was Jewish. Wonderful. And Paul is saying, yes, he, he's, he's Jewish. His father was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. And let me tell you about this letter that came from Jerusalem. You Gentiles are not required to be circumcised. And the Jews who were in the synagogue listening to that said, well, all right, well, Timothy, is he circumcised? His father was Greek. His mother was Jew. That would have created the problem for Paul and Silas and Timothy in ministering to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. So Paul had a solution before they leave Lystra. It tells us very clearly. In verse 3 it says, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So that really is the only reason that Timothy was circumcised. Not because Paul said, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. He knew that that was not correct. He is not contradicting what was spoken by James and Peter in their resolution when they made that statement in Jerusalem. However, Paul also knew that he had to be very practical when he goes into the synagogues and make sure that none of the Jews in the synagogues would have reason to cause them to have problems as they present the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul elaborates on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'd like you to turn there with me. Chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 19. Paul is writing this to the Christians in Corinth, and he says these things in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is, I will do whatever it takes not to offend those who I am trying to win for Christ. And that's the reason Paul circumcised Timothy. So that having been said, turn back with me to the gospel of the book of Acts and continuing on in our reading of chapter 16, beginning with now verse 4, it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. We just talked about that. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. I love that. They were proclaiming the gospel message and people were believing it. It almost sounds easy, doesn't it, for Paul to win souls for Christ. I don't think it was easy. I don't think it was fun. It was hard work. There was much convincing that needed to be done. But as he went on to proclaim the gospel from city to city, the Spirit of God was there with him, leading the way and helping him in every other situation that he had to face. Even though he was facing much opposition, he pressed on and went on and on and on throughout the journeyings, trusting in the Lord that people would hear the Word and the Word would reach their hearts and that God would change their lives to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because he knew that the Spirit of God does that work and still does today, my friends. He hasn't stopped doing the work that he began. The Holy Spirit is still in the business of convicting souls. Jesus said the Spirit of God would come and convict souls of sin and righteousness and judgment. He has come to comfort those who believe. He has come to instruct, to be alongside those who trust in Him. But He's also come to draw all men unto Jesus Christ. And it's done through the preaching of the Word. Paul tells us elsewhere, how can they know unless they hear. And how can they hear unless one is sent? But the truth of the matter is, 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's the ministry that Paul and Silas have entered into, along with now Timothy. And they're going from church to church, and the result is many people are hearing, many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and they are increasing in number daily, just as at the first in Jerusalem and beyond. God is doing a miraculous thing in the Gentile world, and Paul is in the heart of it. But opposition still is very, very present. Things are going very well as far as the numbers of people being added to the church daily. But that doesn't make the ministry that Paul and Silas and Timothy have entered into any easier. And they didn't really have a complete answer as to where they should go. They went one day at a time, trusting in the Lord that He would direct them. And so as it turned out, they thought they were going to be going in a certain direction. But they find out that that's not the direction that God wants them to go. Have you ever had that problem? You thought, I'm supposed to go that way. But God says, no, you've got to go that way. Well, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. It tells us very clearly in verse 6, now, when they had gone through Phrygia in the region of Galatia, that's northern, northwest Turkey, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. They were up there in the northwestern section of the territory that split between Phrygia and, and Galatia, that very, very northern area of Turkey. And Paul wanted to go southwest, down towards Ephesus. Holy Spirit said, nah, you're not going there. Not yet. He didn't say not yet then, but that was the thing that we know now that we know the rest of the story. Paul would get to Ephesus, but not then. But the Holy Spirit just simply says, the Holy Spirit forbid him to go. How he does that, we're not told. Perhaps because Silas was a prophet. Perhaps he spoke through prophet. Perhaps there was an inner voice that Paul sensed no, this isn't right. Some theologians believe that Paul was ill and that his illness prevented him from going that way. But it also must have prevented him from going in another direction because the very next statement is, in verse 7, after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, which is north. So he couldn't go south. He's coming from the east. Now he wants to go north. And what's the Spirit of the Lord say? No, that's not the direction you're supposed to go. It tells us again in verse 7, the Spirit did not permit them. So, all right, I'm heading from Syria, heading westward. I'm coming from the east. I get to this place where I've got a fork in the road. I can't go south or southwest. I can't go north. So I guess the only way for me to go is continue westward. And that is what he did. It wasn't his plan. He didn't think that that was the direction that he was going to go. Have you ever had a time in your life when you thought you were going to be doing something, but you ended up not doing it? I know I have. When I believed that the Lord had called me into the ministry, I was blessed to be 
under the tutorship of a great pastor friend of mine now for so many years. But there came a time when the company I was working for needed me to move from my home in Brunswick to Bangor to be closer to the uh, main office. And as a believer in what God had spoken to me, as the calling to me had been very clear, I really was expecting that God was going to open doors for me in the Bangor area. So we went together, my family and I, moved to Bangor, got an apartment, and I was looking forward to whatever the door was that God had opened. And my dear friend Pastor had written a letter to those who were in authority in the denomination that we were in over that set of churches in the Bangor area. He wrote a wonderful letter encouraging the uh, superintendent to consider me for ministry in one of those churches. I thought it was a done deal. I got to meet with this particular individual and the door was slammed so shut tight that it startled me. I was so completely blown away by it. It was the Spirit of God saying, not here. But it didn't really settle very well with either me or Sandy. It was very, very difficult for us. We traveled all this way expecting that God was going to open these doors and now we've got nowhere that we are aware of that we can go. Well, ultimately, we did find out that God was still in it. But He just chose a different path than what I had expected. If that hasn't happened to you, then perhaps you don't know the discouragement that I felt. But you must know discouragement in many, many other ways. We all face discouraging times. Things that seem to be right just come to an end and you say, Why, Lord? What did I do wrong? What did I not hear? Am I making a mistake by being here? And the Lord's answer is simply, No, no, I'm using it. But it's just not the way that you intended. It's the way... I intended. I can live with that, Lord, if I know what the next step is. <laughs> Sometimes that next step doesn't get revealed right away. Are we patient enough to realize that God will reveal it in His time? So these are questions we all must face. And even though there are difficulties, things that stand in our way of doing what we believe God wants us to do, Are we going to stop it cold and say, well, God blew it. And if He's not going to use me here, He's not going to use me at all. Is that our attitude? God help us if it is. Paul pressed on. He said, okay, we can't go that way. We can't go that way. So we'll keep on going that way. And that's exactly what he did. In verse 9 it says, A vision then appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is due west. Europe, it's Greek territory. Macedonia. Remember Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander? Macedonia was named after him. The territory of Macedonia and the southern area below that, Achaia, was now is Greek, Greece. Then it was two separate territories. Macedonia was the northern part of it. But it was in what is now present-day Europe. And Paul sees this vision of a man, we're not told who, 
There's a lot of speculation, but I don't think we need to go there at all. But knowing that this vision occurred is what the Spirit of the Lord wants us to know. Here's the next step, Paul. You've done well to listen to the Spirit of God and not go southwest, not go north. Now I'm going to reveal to you this is what needs to be done. And so he gives him a vision of a man from Macedonia. Come help us. Take note of the fact that it was a man in the vision. Verse 10 says, Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Right conclusion. Right response. Verse 11 says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. I find that to be amazing, to say the least. They sailed from Troas to Neapolis, took them just a little over a day. They got there on the second day. On the journey back, the same trip will take them five days. I get the impression that God was a little bit wanting to push them along to get them there faster because he had a plan. Paul and Silas had to meet with somebody in Macedonia. But it wasn't the one that they thought it would be. Verse 11 says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. For she persuaded us. It wasn't a man, but a woman that was now the first convert in Europe. That's good news for you ladies, because that wasn't something that typically would happen in that particular day and environment. But going back to the beginning of what we just read in verse 11, they sailed from Troas, they came to Neapolis, and then from there they went to Philippi. And it tells us that this is a colony, a foremost city of that part of Macedonia. It's important that we understand the word for colony here is a critically important revelation by Luke. Because a Roman colony was a city that was declared to be an extension of Rome herself. Everything that was decided upon in Rome would be law in that colony, and there were several colony cities throughout the Roman Empire. They also appointed Roman judges. Roman authority was in place in the colonies. No Greeks, no other legal activity could be done except that which was done in accordance with what Rome said. In that day, Claudius was on the throne. 
And he tells us later that Claudius had made a decree that all Jews had to leave Roman cities. That is probably the reason why we read that there was no synagogue in Philippi. Because a synagogue in that day, it was understood by Jewish custom, there had to be at least ten Jewish males, members, heads of household, in a city before a synagogue could be established. That came shortly after the Babylonian captivity, when they all came back to Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas, and they began to create those buildings where they could house the worship of Jewish families in one location. Like a church, it became known as a synagogue. But again, that restriction was made. You've got to have at least ten heads of household, males, who are in the city in order for a synagogue to be established. And since there was no synagogue in this Roman colony city, the conclusion must be that the decree from Claudius was already in effect. And so that there are only women. And where are they going to meet? They don't have a synagogue to meet, but they have another place where it was acceptable for them to meet. By the river. Psalm 137. When they're in captivity, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. The precedent had been made in that psalm to indicate to anyone who was a worshiper of God where there was no synagogue could meet at a riverbed, a side of a river, or a body of water that they could worship the Lord at collectively in public. That's what these women were doing. No men were there, just this women. And Paul knows that they're likely, if there are any worshipers of God, that's where they would be on a Sabbath day. He goes there and finds them and apparently is invited to speak. And he tells them about Christ. And lo and behold, this woman, Lydia, becomes a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Her and her household. And she invites Paul to stay at her house. The church is born in Philippi. Not by going to the synagogue, but by reaching out to women who heard the word before anybody else in that territory. And they were miraculously saved. Wonderful news. God is working. And Paul had apparently no hesitation to go to a woman first. He just wanted to preach the gospel. And she had ears to hear. Paul will later write, as far as the church is concerned, we're one body. We're neither male nor female. We're neither Greek nor Jew. We're neither bond or free. We're all one in Christ. That declaration is why you women are able to be sitting here in this room today. Because if God hadn't sent Paul to Macedonia, and if he hadn't ministered to Lydia in Macedonia, can you imagine what it would be like if we were Islam instead of Christian? You would not have much of the same privileges that you have now, ladies. 
Christianity is the only religion that has shown such favor to women as it has. All of the others do not. So she was believing in Christ Jesus. She insisted that they come to her house, and they did. Things are going really, really well now. They've started the church ministry in Philippi. I want to backtrack just a moment to what Luke writes. Because as we were reading in the first portion of this scripture today, Luke is writing about their missionary journeyings. Paul and Silas and Timothy. They went from this place to that place. They went this far and God told them, no, you can't go that direction. You've got to go this direction. They went from that place in Mysia to Troas. And from Troas on, instead of Luke saying they went, it tells you we went. The reason I bring that up is because Luke apparently was with them from Troas on through the remainder of much of this text that we'll be looking at on the second missionary journey. He's part of the team. He goes from Troas apparently to Philippi with them. Later on we're going to find out that apparently Luke is left in Philippi while Paul and Silas and Timothy move on to another community further south. But there's work to be done still in Philippi. Luke is with them. And it tells us in verse 16, Now it happened also, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who will claim to us a way of salvation. This girl was demon-possessed. She's telling the truth. But the truth coming from the wrong source is not acceptable to God. And it won't be acceptable to the Apostle Paul. And over and over again, she does this day after day. And so again, in verse 18, it says, This she did many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. There was opposition. It didn't seem like opposition because it was encouraging people to listen to these men who were proclaiming a way to God. Now you may have the definite article. Instead of a way, you may have recorded in your text the way. In the Greek, it's not there. The implication is she was telling a half-truth. She was implying that there may be other ways, but Paul and Silas, they are teaching about a way to God. But the way she was saying it, and apparently the things that she was believed to be involved in as they learned about this girl, that she was a slave to people who were using her in the way that she was able to, for some some strange reason, the spirit that was in her was able to make it so that she could foretell things. And so they were profiting from using this woman and the condition that she was in to bring money into their pockets without any concern for that poor woman who was possessed by this evil spirit. 
But that opposition was there, even though it may not have seemed like opposition at first. It was very much so a problem for Paul. He realized it. And he turned to that woman. And he didn't address the woman. He addressed the spirit who was dwelling in her. Come out of her. And he did that very hour. Good for that girl. She was set free. Perhaps, and we're not told, perhaps she became a believer. I'd love to believe that that she did. But she was set free from that demonic possession. And that opposition was no longer an issue for Paul and Silas and Timothy. However, it created another level of opposition. Already we found, back in our previous studies, opposition from a religious source, the Jews, wanting to discourage the Gentiles from believing the way that Paul had instructed them. We found that there was discourse that caused a division among the saints of God, distraction, turning them away from perhaps God's intended purpose for them. There were things that were taking place that kept them from going forward with their determination to, to serve God in the way that they had decided And now we're coming to a place where there's another area of opposition. And this time it's not coming from the spiritual realm as it just had. It's not coming from the religious realm as it had before. It's coming from the civil side of life. Verse 19 says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They were Jews. They're not allowed. The magistrate is a Roman, and he does not want to allow male Jews to be present in his Roman colony city. Then it goes on and tells more of their complaint. Verse 21, they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. They were saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans insisted that Caesar is Lord. So they were teaching things contrary to the laws of the Roman Empire. Something must be done. Well, verse 22 says, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Oh, they're Jews. They're causing trouble. We've got a solution. Beat them up. Do you know that Paul was beaten with rods five times in his experience throughout his days as a missionary? This is one of them. He was also imprisoned many times. This will be one of them. It says in verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. These Jews are not going to escape. They went into the inner prison. That could not have been fun. That could not have been comfortable. That could not have been encouraging. But read on. It tells us in verse 25, But at midnight, Paul and Silas 
were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> and the prisoners were listening to them. They were singing praise to God. I don't know what songs they were singing. Probably several of the psalms that are many of them songs of praise. But whatever it was that they were singing, everybody was hearing these men being incarcerated, having been beaten with rods, are singing praises to their God. What is wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. In fact, everything is just fine. They are just praying to the Lord. Lord, thank you for letting us suffer for your sake, just as Peter and John had done in Jerusalem so long ago. Paul and Silas were praising the Lord for the privilege that they had of experiencing the sufferings of Christ. Remember Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, in chapter 3, talks about the fact that it's his desire to know the fellowship of his suffering. Okay, Paul, that's good for you. (laughs) I'd just as soon not have to deal with that. But he does say elsewhere, and we've already seen it in this book of the Acts, where Paul said, through much suffering, we all must experience if we are true believers. Well, Paul and Silas are in jail, praising the Lord, singing songs unto the Lord, making a joyful noise unto God. Suddenly, think about it. They're singing these songs of praise. Oh, a happy, joyous time together. And God's hearing every word. And He's listening to the music that's coming out of their mouths. Open my mouth, O Lord, that I might pour forth Your praise, the psalmist says. And when we do that, I believe God's in heaven. Just keep Him beat. Oh yeah, I love that. Oh yeah. Oh, you're doing good. Yeah, keep it up, boys. Keep it up. Well, when God makes that kind of racket in heaven, you know what the result is down below? Read it. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, (laughs) so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. Everyone, not just Paul's and Silas's, every prisoner was set free. God, you're overdoing this enjoyment of the song that they're singing. Oh no, I'm not overdoing it. I'm doing it on purpose. You see what God is doing? He let them go into that place. That opposition was necessary for them to have that experience in that prison cell and see the miraculous things that God is about to do and is now doing. And there's a purpose for it all. Verse 27 says, And a keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, of course that earthquake would probably be more than likely the reason. He woke from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He's a guard who was given the responsibility of making sure those prisoners do not escape at the cost of his own life if they do escape. And with that earthquake that had just happened and he sees that the doors of the prison cells are wide open, what other conclusion can he make except this? It's dark, he can't see anything, but he believes that they've all escaped. And it's better, as far as he's concerned, 
to commit suicide than to let the Romans kill him. He knew that was his destiny. But Paul was able to see that that was what he was about to do. And he calls out verse 28 with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then the prison guard, prison guard called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What a wonderful question that is. What must we do to be saved? If that question haunts you here today, it's because you don't know the answer. I do. It's in the Word of God. There is an answer. It's a wonderful answer. It's the only answer. It is the answer that is the answer that God Himself has given. It's simple. What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Believe on Jesus. That's all. I don't have to do any work. I don't have to pay anything to you to earn it. I don't have to be a faithful church attendee. I don't have to tithe. I don't have to pay indulgences. I can just believe in Jesus. Yup. That's all. In order to be saved, that is the only requirement. Well, how can we say that? How could Jesus say it? By the way, if Jesus said it, it must be true. Because He knows. Doesn't He? John Gospel of John. Chapter 6, verse 47. Jesus has been confronted, rejected by His own family. But He's entering into a discussion in this portion of John's Gospel. And in that discussion, he tells us this. Not everyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He's speaking of himself. So he's expressing the fact that I've got the authority to say these things because I am the only one who has known God and seen him face to face. I have seen the Father, he says. And then he says in verse 47, now listen, this is, this is theology. This is the only thing that you need to know. Most assuredly, I say to you, verse 47, he who believes in me has eternal life. Paul said it. Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved because Jesus said it. Believe in me and you shall have eternal life. Not that you might have. Not that it's a possibility that it's, a, it's, it's going to go that way. It is a certainty. You have eternal life. Paul tells us elsewhere in the book of Romans in chapter 9. 
One of the most wonderful passages in the entire book of Romans is this promise. It tells us in chapter 9, Make that chapter 10. I just turned to the wrong page. Chapter 10, Romans, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So what's the criteria for salvation? Speak it. And believe it. If you come to Christ any other way, it's not going to work, my friends. If you come to Christ and say, okay, I believe in the finished work on the cross, but I'm going to make sure that I say penance every Sunday. I'm going to make sure that I have that salvation that you have promised me by doing something other than what you say I need to do. Hogwash. Error, error, error. Blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy. Heresy. It's not what God wants us to believe. He just simply wants us to believe that we come by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, well, what can be unfinished? He did it all. He did it all. And that's why we can say so easily, perfectly convinced of this. You come by faith, acknowledge your sin before a holy God, and receive the salvation that He has offered to you by expecting nothing less than that salvation to be given when you say, God, help me to believe in Jesus Christ. I receive that which He has done. I accept that which He has done. I believe it with all my heart. I speak it with my mouth as one who has said yes to you. And if you can say that kind of prayer, then you're in. Don't think you have to do anything more. You've entered into that wonderful place that we call eternal rest. You want rest for your soul? Jesus said He can give it to you. Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no other that can give that rest. No other that can give that peace. No other that can extend that joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's only through Him and Him alone. That's what Paul is telling this jailer. A Gentile who just heard them singing and perhaps had heard about what was going on within the community while they were preaching the Word of God. He may have even heard the message that Paul was proclaiming as things were being spoken throughout the city of Philippi. The end result is, this man got gloriously saved. But notice the promise that Paul makes to this man. You shall be saved, you and your household. Now Paul apparently must have received from the Spirit of God that confirmation that his entire household would indeed be saved. That's not a guarantee for all of us. We each of us must understand that we all 
must work out our own salvation if you're in trembling. But we pray for our household. We pray for our sons and daughters, our family members who don't know Jesus Christ. And we pray that God would reach their hearts as He has reached ours. But it's up to them. It's not a written guarantee here for the salvation of your family. It's worth praying for as though it were something you can't apply. And I hope that you all have been praying for the lost in your families. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because there's still time. Continue to pray fervently, daily, on behalf of those who do not know Christ. Within your family, your neighbors, your fellow workers. God will answer prayer. God does answer prayer. And He is faithful to perform it. Do you believe that? I know I do. And I'll not stop praying for the lost because of that truth. Continuing on in In verse 32 it says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officer saying, Let those men go. Apparently the magistrate had given some thought overnight and said, you know, it's not worth the fight here. Just let them go. Not yet. Verse 36. I love it. So the keeper of the prison reported those words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent you to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, wait a minute. They've beaten us openly. Uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No way. No way indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. What Paul is saying here is, look, they made a big mistake. They knew we were Jews, but they didn't know we're Roman Jews. Citizens of Rome had special citizen privileges. Paul knew that very, very well. He'll use it again another time. He didn't use it at the first here. We're not told exactly why. But now he's using it. He's saying, hey, they want us to go? Not yet. We've got work to do. And by the way, we're Roman citizens. And they did something to us that is not allowed under Roman law. And because it's not allowed, all of you Romans who were part of that are in big trouble. As a matter of fact, they could have faced the death penalty if Rome had found out about this. A little bit of fear doesn't hurt when it's on the enemy side. Verse 38 says, And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The work in Philippi is now done as far as Paul and Silas are concerned. We'll find out later that 
Luke will stay behind. Paul, Silas, and Timothy will go on to the next city. The second missionary journey goes through chapters 17 and 18 and there's much to be learned and much to be seen as we study this word together. Keep in mind, there's always going to be opposition. It never is going to be easy for a true follower of Christ. However, we can know this, all things work together for good according to His purpose in Christ Jesus. Trusting in God, believing His Word, it don't get better than this, my friends. Let us continue in Jesus' name and for His glory.